I was weeping actually in that last song because some of you may not realize the impact of the vineyard worldwide, the incredible impact the vineyard has had. Matt Redman was a little boy in my dad's church when they came back from the mission field to England, uh, to St. Andrews, and he was one of the little boys in that church. And during uh, his childhood, one of our volunteer youth leaders had married his mother because his father had committed suicide. And, uh, but that volunteer youth leader sexually abused Matt. So Matt had the most horrific childhood. But when the vineyard came to my parents' church, all sorts of things were exposed. And little Matt was able to confide in Mike Pilavacci, his youth leader, who now heads up Soul Survivor movement around the world, which is a youth movement. And, um, and he was able to confide in him, and he got, received a lot of healing. And, you know, that little boy is now a man, and some of the worship songs that he writes are just incredible. And, of course, he got a Grammy for that one, didn't he? So there's a big party back in England this week uh, with my parents and my sister and all sorts of people that know Matt and Beth. So you need to know the impact of the vineyard and how, when the vineyard first came to England, it just turned our churches and our lives upside down. And it may not be all about what the actual church planting movement of the vineyard is doing in the UK. It's far wider. It's across established churches in the UK and Europe and all around the world. So um, we're part of a big family. And it always amazes me coming here how instantly we just click with vineyard people. I mean, we just instantly, it's like, we've, it's like we were twins. You know, you know, two peas in a pod, we talk it, we say in England, two peas in a pod. Wherever we go, I just find just my, just such a love for my sisters in the vineyard, for my brothers and sisters in the vineyard. Anyway, I thought today I would start with my story, but also just to know, with all those notes, I don't know how much of them you will be able to follow. Uh, this is something that Duluth do. <laughs> Duluth? Do I say Duluth? Duluth? Duluth. And... Um, <laughs> And so, you know, work it out for yourselves as we go along. And, um, you know, anyway, so today, no notes, which is very helpful. Well, my parents were missionaries in South America and Chile. It was a very exciting childhood. We were, um, there were lots of earthquakes. Um, We were in the midst, I remember kind of around seven, six, seven, we were in the midst of the Allende regime where there was a lot of political unrest. There was guerrilla warfare outside my bedroom window, so bullets flying around. And my parents had to put cupboards and things against the window so that if um, a bullet should come in, uh, it would, you know, it would may not get through. But then they moved my bed to a different part of the bed so that it would ricochet around the room. And by the time a bullet hit me, it wouldn't hurt me. So that was kind of the, the way it was. We had food shortages, had to queue for little pats of butter for about an hour. And on one occasion, someone delivered a big uh, sack of flour. And we were so excited to have flour, but it was filled with rats dropping. So we had to sieve it with nets, you know, window nets. And, uh, and all the rats droppings, the, the flour came through and the rats droppings. But then my mother put raisins in the bread. So in case there was a rats dropping, we wouldn't know that we'd eaten it. Um, but... But the thing that was incredibly exciting is um, on the way out to Chile, my father had read a book called The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church, written by, somebody must know, Gordon, no, no, I can't remember. Anyway, somebody will know. Anyway, it was, it was a frightening book because it talked about really releasing the gifts of the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to lead the people at a grassroots level and for churches to emerge in that way. 
And during all this political unrest, uh, we had some kind of revival breakouts in some different new um, poblaciones, they were called, areas that were being built up. And amazing things were happening because there were no churches in these areas, no buildings that looked like churches. And so as the people started to get converted in these areas, they started to form little communities and worship leaders would spring up and start writing songs and, and somebody would just find themselves teaching and leading. And, and uh, it, was, it was just shocking for my father because he was an Anglican and they started out in uh, leading churches that were like proper with little steeples that looked like little, uh, you know, English church buildings in Chile. It was absolutely bizarre. But anyway, these churches sprung up, and I remember the joy and the excitement. I remember watching one of the um, witch doctor guys, his, burning all his books, and it was very dramatic. People were being delivered, healed. I remember seeing um, young people uh, experience a kind of a pain in their mouths, and they would run out to the, to the car windows because their teeth had been filled with uh, what appeared to be gold. It wasn't gold, but it was a gold substance. And um, because these are poor people who couldn't access dentistry, they couldn't, they, it was all private out there. If you, if you could afford the dentist, yes, but if you were poor, you couldn't afford a dentist. And so there were these amazing miracles going on. And then at age 13, my mum and dad sent me to school, to boarding school in England. And... I was utterly shocked because I thought my parents were missionaries in Chile because everybody in England were Christians because it was called a Christian nation. And I went to boarding school and realized that there were maybe one or two other true Christian kids, probably missionary kids like, like myself. And, but we had to go to chapel every day, and it was the most boring experience of singing hymns, looking up things in books, um, people teaching you supposedly from the word of God, but with absolutely no life in it, and sort of didn't seem to believe what they were teaching. And, um, and I became really confused and disillusioned. Is that someone's phone? Oh, uh, don't worry about me. Anyway, so, um, so you know, I, I was really confused, and I started to lose confidence in the gospel. I began to wonder whether the gospel was just for the poor or, you know, for people in a different culture. I just, I just didn't, I, it didn't seem that the way I would express if I talked about miracles or I just felt like there, there was nothing, I didn't know how to express the love of Jesus. And I was had so many questions and, um, and my parents weren't there. And so I kind of went through my teenage years and um, started to just really lose my identity in relationships with boys. It was a co-ed boarding school. And so um, outside of the watchful eye of the teachers, there were many things that we could get up to. So at a very early age, I became very sexually promiscuous. I lost my virginity by a railway line to a guy I wasn't even dating. Um, I was 15. And um, I knew that this was wrong. I knew that this, was, this, this wasn't the right thing. And I instantly felt a separation between myself and, and, and the Lord. And... All I could say was, I'm sorry, but I just didn't really get repentance. And I had nobody to talk to um, who would be able to sort of mentor me in my journey or anybody to look to as an example. And I was just, um, I just went crazy. And um, then my parents came back to England and my father became the vicar of um, a church in north of London called Ch uh, in a little village called Chorleywood, St. Andrew's Chorleywood. And um, I would go home in the holidays, uh, but I really didn't connect with anybody there. They had, they had a, quite a large youth group, but I didn't get involved because I was 
so different to these now godly young people. I was really um, quite rebellious and cynical and desperately actually hungry, but keeping my, my guard up. And um, I then was at home for a year going to art college. And that's when I met John, who was one of the young people at St. Andrews. But he was kind of on the edge as well. He was at a different art college. And um, we kind of started dating, but then he went to Sheffield in the north, kind of more north of England, to study jewellery, silversmithing and jewellery. And I ended up going to Nottingham to study creative arts, art, drama, dance and music. And um, we loved what we were doing. We, were, we became very, very arty. And um, all my friends were incredibly creative people, good writers of dramas, dancers. I mean, they were just amazing and life was very full. We partied hard. My friends were experimenting in, 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 with everything. Their sexuality, even if they weren't gay, they were going to experiment sexually. They were experimenting with drugs, powders, mushrooms, everything. And um, in a one sense, I might have appeared quite conservative compared to them. But, but actually, John and I sat there one day and we tried to count up how many Christian friends we actually had anywhere sort of within you know a couple of hours reach and we we couldn't count any and then the friends that we did have we had become very distant with and um and I really took John right out of the church and we began to sleep together probably when we were I was about 17 and um so we had this relationship and if ever we went to church we would be the last in and the first out we didn't go often but we kind of went because Neither of us could shake off the fact that God was real, but we were not following him. We were not following Jesus. Our lives were not surrendered. And it was a miserable uh, state to be in. Uh, We didn't want any form of accountability. And yet, on the one hand, we were doing everything we wanted to do, everything, and life was full. But deep down, we were full of tension and um, not, not, not really happy. And I began to, um, I think I began to develop an eating disorder when I was at boarding school. I had very strange eating habits, but I would never have understood uh, what it was. But when I got to um, uni to study dance and drama and art and everything, I discovered that lots of my friends were throwing up their food. And I thought, that's a great way to, to watch your weight. And so I started throwing up my food and all of a sudden I was gripped. I mean, it was like everything. I had to throw everything up. And, uh, and then, you know, the obsession with the way I looked in front of a mirror, dancing many hours a day, exercising a lot, and then I just, you know, stopped eating. And my periods stopped. Um, so for a couple of years, I had no periods. And when I would go home, my parents would be really worried about me and talk to me about, you know, what was going on, but I wouldn't open up because by this time I felt incredibly distant. And I began to believe that just as they were distant and I was distant from them, so was my relationship with the Lord. I mean, there was just nothing there. And, um, and then one day, I called home. We didn't have mobile phones. We, there were phone boxes, little red English phone box. And um, I called home just to sort of, it was kind of a, every three months, I would call home, you know, I'm, I'm okay. And, uh, and I was talking to my dad, and he was very excited. And, of course, my parents didn't know what really was going on with me. They had their concerns and worries, but they didn't know the extent to how... Um, gravely how in danger I was and um, so my father was telling me that they'd had a visit by an American team led by a man called John Wimber from the vineyard and he had brought over to their church probably 20 young people uh, late teens early 20s who apparently had paid for themselves 
to come to England to bless the established church. And I, I was just shocked. I, I could understand giving, you know, sacrificing your money to go to Africa or South America to look after the poor or, you know, something like that. But the idea that they would come to bless the established church, what was there to bless in the established church? I was just shocked. But, um, but he began to talk about this meeting that had happened in their church. And for some reason, it was a midweek meeting, but the church was packed out. And um, they had an auditorium, maybe a how many can you see in here? Six, 600? 700. So it was probably a little bit smaller, but with an overflow room. So they, they, it was absolutely packed. And um, the, the pews were set rows, not, not chairs that you could move around, long pews. People were crammed in there, and John Wimber talked about, he said something like, God wants his church back. He wants the minister, David Pitch, is my dad, to stop doing all the work. You need to take it on. You are the ones that the Holy Spirit is, is um, gifting, and uh, God wants to, you know, everybody gets to play, and he talked about, you know, the gifts of the Spirit, and uh, just all sorts of things, and at the end, he, um, he invited the Holy Spirit, and it seemed an audacious thing to say, come Holy Spirit, how dare we suggest to the Holy Spirit that he should come, you know, we saw it as like, how dare he order the Holy Spirit, I mean, as Dad's telling me this, I'm, I'm so shocked, and, um, but, this incredible thing happened. People started falling on the floor, shaking. Somebody had um, a blind eye. They saw arthritic hands that were like started opening up. One of the women in the church, and I had seen her, and John knew her from when he was a small boy in the church. Um, she had MS, multiple sclerosis. She was in a wheelchair. In all the years that I had visited my dad's church, I had never seen her speak coherently. She gets up out of her wheelchair, she puts her husband in the wheelchair, and she starts wheeling him around the church. Now, this is a village church. People are standing on the pews, they're clapping and cheering. Mary Riddlesdale is walking, and you know, she, she wasn't completely healed. This was one, one we, we learned a lot of things. She, it set up, you know, she went back about 10 years. So she was able to speak, she was able to walk, dress herself, and she and her husband had probably five years of a real quality marriage, and then she started to deteriorate again. So it was a very interesting sign and a wonder. It wasn't a complete healing or miracle, but it was very dramatic. And um, all sorts of things started to happen. A bunch of young people came in the back of the church who just heard the commotion. And they walked in, they're seeing all this stuff going on, and one of the American team uh, said to them, do you want some? And before they could answer, he put all, linked all their hands together and joined their hands with somebody who clearly was experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was like electricity went through them. And this young kid from America, from LA, says, do you want to know Jesus? And these kids don't know, have no church background because England is pretty godless now. And um, so they said yes. And three of them were soundly converted. One of them is my brother-in-law. So he from that point, got integrated into the church, ended up dating my younger sister, is now uh, married to her, and is, has been a Christian, a solid Christian ever since. So these were sound conversions. And so my dad's telling me this stuff, and inside I just am thinking, oh, I want to come home. I want to come home. This is, this is what I want to be a part of. What, you know, it's like I just, my, the blindness just lifted. And, and I remember walking back to the refectory where my friends were, just saying, God, I want to come home. I want to be a part of this. I want to, I want to play. And uh, I got back to the refectory. My friends were sitting around the, one of the tables drinking tea, coffee, and eating things. And, and I just started to tell them about all these things that were happening in my dad's church. Now, they barely knew that I was even a believer. And I said to them, 
apparently, because I believe in Jesus, I could heal the sick. And uh, at one point, this girl who, she was so butch that for six weeks, I didn't know that she was a woman. I thought she was a man. But she was very, very talented in drama and all sorts of stuff. But she says to me, Deb, she says, you want to be really careful. This sounds well dodgy. <laughs> you know, she, was get, she was all protective over me. And they were into everything. The parties were crazy. They were all, oh, geez, they were, it was, a, it was just such a terrible scene. But she was worried about me. But she said, but, she said, if you think you can heal people, her partner, Claire, had been taken up to the sand with supposedly threatened appendicitis. The ambulance was on its way from the hospital. She was in terrible pain. She says, you, you need to go and heal Claire. So I went, yeah, okay. I hadn't been in a meeting I, so, so I go up to this son and I, and I remember saying to Claire, Claire, I don't know if you know that I believe in Jesus. And she goes, do you? And I said, yes, I, I do. And apparently, because I believe in Jesus, I could heal you in Jesus' name. And so she says, um, well, yeah, okay. And uh, so I, I remembered my childhood and I kind of laid and I thought I must speak in tongues and I invented something like, shalabalabalabalabala, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, because I just, this is the, I remember in my childhood seeing things. And uh, anyway, the pain left her. Now, we don't know, did she or didn't she have it? Was it just, uh, you know, wind? We don't know. But as far as my friends were concerned, Claire had been dramatically healed. And from that point on, they would come to me with toothache, with headaches, with everything. And, and they, we would see signs and wonders. And they became really interested in Jesus. And so I'd be like reading through the gospel, telling them stories about Jesus. They wanted to know more and more about Jesus. And anyway, I remember calling John up and telling him about the way what happened in my dad's church had really impacted me. And we began to talk about coming back to the Lord and what did that mean. And we decided that we had to repent no longer say sorry, but we had to completely abstain. We were just fully involved sexually, and we had to completely abstain, and we got engaged. Now, at that point in time, um, John was now working in Oxford, had a great job designing jewelry for an amazing company, and I was on my way to London to do advanced performance training. But I'm still very, very thin, no periods. Um, I'm a mess inside, but I'm getting all excited about what God is doing um, in terms of his kingdom and people coming to faith and things like that. And, uh, but, so we were going to get married, but we were still going to live in separate cities. I was going to live in London and John Oxford. Because we just wanted to do the right thing, but we still had our own plans. You know, we had no idea what it meant to say to the Lord, you know, whatever, whatever you want, Lord, it, you know, what's the plan now? So we're still living this kind of crazy dream. And, but one of our frustrations also, or my frustration was that I would take my friends who were really intrigued by the person of Jesus to church. And the only church that kind of I knew was another Anglican church in Nottingham that my parents knew about. And I would take them there. And though this little church was a loving Christian community, they did not expect unchurched people to come into the congregation. So the first thing that happened in those days, you could smoke in a surgery, a doctor's surgery. You could smoke in a doctor's surgery. So they start lighting up in church. Why was the church the only place you could smoke anywhere? Anywhere at all, restaurants, you know, while somebody's eating who doesn't smoke, others would be smoking through each, in between each course, they'd light up a cigarette. I mean, I cannot believe, everybody's ceilings were yellow. You know, I mean, it, those days are unheard of now, how quickly times have changed. But my friends, and the church were like, they'd look at them, and then they'd want to kind of have a little discussion. They wanted to know why the people in the front wore penguin outfits. Because they had these white, black and white robes on, and they didn't get it. And... Um, you know, they just, it was just a culture clash. And um, 
Anyway, uh, John and I had said to ourselves, if John Wimber comes back to this country, we've got to get ourselves to one of these meetings. So we're already seeing people kind of come to faith, but having difficulty discipling them or integrating them into the church. We had began to see people healed from fairly mild, you know, um, not dramatic things, but, but definitely some healings and signs and wonders. But we ourselves had not experienced the Holy Spirit. And um, I just wonder how long it was going to go on where the Lord would say, you know, I don't know how well I know you, <laughs> but you are ministering in my name. You know, we were ministering in the name of Jesus, and, but, but, you know, whether we were totally surrendered at that point, I don't know. It was a journey. And I'm still a mess inside. I'm not eating and I don't have any periods. And uh, um, I had no idea that God could heal me on the inside. Anyway, we got ourselves to a meeting at my dad's church when John came back. And I remember walking in and I brought with me my non-Christian bridesmaid-to-be. We were both anorexic, both very skinny little girls. And we walk into the back of church and there was an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. And John Wimber was just playing a simple love song. Consider how he loves us. His arms of love enfold us. It's called Sweet Perfume. I began to sob and sob. I'd I'd never sobbed in church. Why was I crying? What was it about? I was just sobbing and sobbing. I, I mean... It was just the most incredible experience of the love of the Father. I had never, I didn't know that I even needed it. I didn't know that it could be that tangible, that real. And I'm weeping. My bridesmaid-to-be, who's not a believer, she's weeping. John's standing next to me. He's clearly moved. He's not weeping yet, but clearly something's going on with him. And, um, and then I can't remember what John spoke about, um, but he said, I think first there was ministry happening in the building and John, my John stood up and he starts to shake violently and it frightened me and because uh, I'd, I'd heard of things happening but I hadn't seen it happen and I remember tugging on his arm and saying, are you all right? And he said, yeah, it feels good. It feels good. And, uh, and then there was this call, if anybody wants ministry for anything and I ran to the front and it was probably totally inappropriate. I think it was a guy who prayed for me. Well, I fell to the ground with this kind of... I think I was delivered, but I don't remember what happened. But I went down on the floor, and then probably 20 minutes later, I remember I started walking back towards the back row, which is where we were sitting, and I just knew that everything was going to change. And I remember the, the, the words of Thomas Chalm, Chalmers, I think he says, talks about the expulsive power of a greater affection. When something so much bigger comes into your life that everything else goes on the back burner. And as I walked to the back, I just knew God was going to change everything, that everything was going to be surrendered, that there was going to be, that I was going to do everything that I could to, to walk with him and to obey him in every way possible. And suddenly John and I began to feel challenged that we should actually live together when we got married, that we should actually ask the Lord where we should live when we got married. And um, the only thing that, that made any sense, just this was like the week before we got married, was that we should actually stay in Nottingham, that I shouldn't go to London, that John should quit his job in Oxford, that when I finished my degree, I should, um, that we should live in London. Uh, during the year, as we came towards my wedding day, my periods returned and I had started to eat uh, just a little bit more normally, but it was a, it was a real sign and a wonder when that happened. Um, and... Then I progressively got better um, over our, during our first year of marriage. I started to develop better eating habits. And, you know, and what was amazing is some friends of my parents who had been so impacted by the vineyard and the whole ministry of inner healing, 
I was able to see them a couple of times during that year, and God did some really profound stuff in my life to do with, you know, being separated from my parents and just the, the trauma of all of that. And um, I was able to embrace forgiveness and give forgiveness, and it was just a, a very cleansing renewal of the soul, really. And, um, and now I wasn't just ministering with sheer excitement. I was actually ministering from a place of the Lord's compassion and just... It wasn't, you know, I, I realized that some of the way I started it was just so dramatic and so much fun. But then now there was this real sense of what is the father doing? Where is he moving? Who is he? What's he up to? And am I going to follow him? And uh, we got married. We moved to Nottingham. We got involved in our local church of England. But again, the real frustration was that our non-Christian friends were finding it really difficult to integrate. But we would take them to vineyard conferences. We would sneak them in the back. Um, because it, it was a lot of money in those days. We'd never, we never were used to paying to go to, to have Christian training of any kind. But, um, so we would sneak our friends in the back because my parents were friends with John and Carol and we would get to go in and, and our friends loved. The worship was so well done and it was so moving and the Holy Spirit was so present as it was this morning. Um, there was just, from beginning to end, a sense of the presence of God and they were enthralled by the teaching they were, they were fascinated by the ministry. Deliverance was just fascinating. They, they needed deliverance, but they were, they were fascinated. They loved it. They wanted to be in that environment. And so John and I began to think, you know, surely there could be vineyards. Surely, you know, we could do this kind of thing in England. But um, John Wimber kept saying, no, no, he'd promised the established churches that they wouldn't plant vineyards in England. And um, so we really wrestled with... with you know, wouldn't it be amazing if somebody planted a vineyard? We could take our friends. We would move anywhere in the country to be a part of a vineyard. And, um, but then people started to say to us, you know, there's leadership on you guys. You guys need to consider, you know, leading something. But the only option, therefore, was the Church of England. So we went through this whole year-long process of applying for the Church of England. And we were very concerned because we just knew that we would want to turn an established church into a vineyard. <laughs> and that's really hard. Um, but we just kept praying and praying, and we went on this journey. And during the year where we knew that we would either end up going for training within the Church of England, or we didn't know what else, um, we had had, at that point, a jewelry business. John was a jeweler, uh, silversmithing and jewelry. That's what his degree had been in. And we had started a business in the center of Nottingham. And, um, and we felt the Lord say, don't put any more money into the business um, you know, you're not going to be in this for long. So we, we decided to pull out. And the week that we were kind of packing up all the boxes, not knowing quite what was going to be next, um, a friend of ours came by the shop and said to John, we really need somebody who's really practical to come and help us uh, refurbish and, and develop houses for homeless young offenders who come out of prison or people, young people who are homeless. Actually, some of them were older. And uh, we have these houses that are run, you know, every house has a Christian person in them. And um, so we thought, wow, that's amazing. We didn't know that there were, you know, so many people in that kind of situation who would need to be housed in this way. And we had our eyes opened. And John started working in, in one of these places, well, several of them refurbishing these houses. And he would work with the residents. And he would bribe them with like, cigarettes and things and get them to work with him. But um, it was fascinating. I, on the other hand, went to work with um, the dressing, the wealthiest women in Nottingham, some of our television media personalities. 
So we, had, we were living these, these extreme people, the wealthiest and the poorest, but all of them needed Jesus. All of them were just intrigued with stories of people coming to faith. And, and um, we thought, goodness, you know, God's opening our eyes to the poor, the urban poor, the angry poor. We met Tom and Helen, who are now our associates, but they were living in one of these houses. At one point, John and I moved into one of these houses, and we lived there for two weeks. One of the, it was a girl's house, so there were six girls in the house, and it, all except one girl, every one of them attempted suicide in the two weeks that we were there. It was terrifying. It was horrific. And it was not an easy, you know, this was not just one dramatic, you know, encounter with Jesus. This was real hardcore stuff. And it really turned our whole worldview upside down. And how would we help people like this uh, who needed intense ministry, but they needed to, some people want to walk with them through life. It wasn't just a one-off conference ministry type thing. This was people who needed to be integrated into a community that was stable, that could, there could be a high level of accountability. And uh, we began to see that the church in our nation in England was really good at taking care of the elderly and um, you know, sending missionaries to Africa and different places, but, but the urban poor, nobody seemed to be doing anything for the urban poor in our cities. They were frightening people. They were often, you know, thieves and into drugs and various addictions. They, they were difficult people to have in our churches. And so we had so many questions. And at the end of that year, the Church of England turned us down. And we were actually very relieved and we, but because we knew that it was the Lord's will that we should pursue whatever it meant to be in leadership of some sort, but we had very little faith that it would all work out within the Church of England. And uh, then somehow the door opened for us to go and spend three months at the Anaheim Vineyard with John and Carol and their church. And we showed up there, and I remember walking into this big warehouse in, on Cerritos Avenue. It wasn't beautiful in any way. It wasn't beautiful like this building. It was, but we felt so at home. And they had a whole wing um, of provision for the poor. And we knew we were at home. And I remember sobbing my way through every service, just crying and crying, just feeling so at home. But still there weren't going to be vineyards planted in England. But John and Eleanor Mumford were there, a British couple. John had been trained, John Mumford had been trained in the Church of England. And, um, but they had felt the Lord move them from the Church of England to the vineyard, but they, they felt called to plant a vineyard in the UK, but there was no permission yet to do that. There was another couple called Rick and Lulu Williams from the UK. The Lanes came out. And um, we found ourselves with these other couples from the UK, all feeling called to plant vineyards. Um, it was terrifying, but it was just so, the Lord was so on us for this. And finally, John Wimber called the, the leaders of the US together, to seek the Lord, was it, was it that the Lord was saying that they should release the Brits to plant vineyards in the UK? And, um, and the Lord said yes. And so I remember John Wimber saying to John Eleanor, I don't know if this is the Lord, <laughs> but you clearly feel the Lord is speaking to you. So we're going to release you, we're going to bless you, but we're not going to resource you, we're not going to give you loads of money or you know, give you any sort of salary, you've got to fend for yourselves. If the Lord's in this, he will bless and the finances will come. Uh, we'll pay for your tickets home. We'll buy you a computer. And that was it. And when we heard that John and Eleanor were being released to plant the first vineyard, we knew that we would need to go with them and that would be our training. And so after eight months, three months turned into eight months, eight months, and by this time I was pregnant with my first child, Zach, we moved to London from Nottingham, knowing that one day we would come back to Nottingham. 
That was our passion. That was our dream. That's what we felt the Lord had put in our hearts. But we would give ourselves to serving John and Eleanor. In fact, I remember somebody at Anaheim talking about coming back from Wheeling, West Virginia. It was Todd and Debbie Hunter. And they were living, we were living in a house, uh, a shared house with a number of families. And um, they talked about why they had left their church in Wheeling. And I, I was just amazed that they would leave a church that they had planted that had grown to about four or 500 people. Why would they leave that church? And, they, and Debbie said, we, we felt the Lord call us at this point in time to lay down our vision and serve John and Carol. And I remember grasping that phrase and, and John and I talking about laying down our vision and serving John and Eleanor. And so we did it happily for many, many years. After two years, they said to us, my John did some theology training. They said, if you want to go, if you feel ready, if you feel the Lord speaking, you, you're released. You know, we, we don't want to keep you longer than you need to be here. We love you being with us, but you just tell us when. But we loved working with them, and we were learning so much. We needed to be discipled. We had so many things I needed to be... And my clothing, I was inappropriate in every way. On one occasion... Eleanor said to me, Debbie, I just need to talk to you about the little bolero top. It was kind of a little short thing where I exposed my whole tummy. Very little thing. It looked more like an underwear than it did real clothes. And I remember wearing it, pushing my baby around with shorts. And, um, and Eleanor says to me, uh, Debbie, I just need to speak to you about that little bolero top. And I said, oh, do you want to borrow it? <laughs> she goes, I think it's a little inappropriate. And I went, oh, Really? And, uh, you know, there was just a number of things that I just was clueless. And um, she just helped me. And it was wonderful, and I so appreciated it. And um, we were so happy. And, but the Lord was silent on when the timing was to go to Nottingham. And many of the people in our own small group began to plant churches. Because we talked endlessly about planting churches. We were just full of it. And, and yet the Lord wasn't releasing us, wasn't speaking. And so eventually, after about, it was, uh, it was probably the seventh year, we were calling out to the Lord for a significant period of time, and we just, there was absolute silence. And so we just thought, you know, maybe we're supposed to stay for a lot longer. Maybe our kids are, are going to grow up, and when they go off to university, we will then go and plant a church in Nottingham. And we're just going to give ourselves to serving John and Eleanor. By now, there were at least 26 vineyards in the UK, and John and Eleanor had become the movement leaders. And this was a really happy deal. We moved to a most wonderful home. I mean, it was absolutely quintessentially English home, stunningly beautiful. And our kids were in the best schools. And everything was hunky-dory. And then one night, uh, one of my friends called me and she said, uh, can you give me a lift to church tomorrow with her two children? So I said, yeah, sure. So I left 10 minutes before my John and our two children. I had a second one by then, Jordan. And so... I left and picked Michelle up and Rachel and uh, Tim, and uh, we got them strapped in, and off we drove. And on the way to church, I did a right-hand turn, and obviously we drive the different, different way, did a right-hand turn across green traffic lights, which is allowed, but I did not see the oncoming car. And the oncoming car crashed into mine, and my car rolled over, and little Rachel, Michelle's daughter, was killed. And it was my fault. There was absolutely no question about it. It was my fault. First of all, the grief for Michelle. I mean, it is so the wrong way around to lose your child. She, Ali, uh, her husband was a Muslim, um, and it was just terrible to, to, to just watch the, the despair um, over Michelle. The church was in shock. 
you know, church was ready to begin, the service was ready to begin, and suddenly there's an announcement that little Rachel's fighting for her life. Um, it caused a, just a total traffic jam. Helicopter had to come and take Rachel. I think I was the last one to look into her eyes before she... I mean, she was probably out of, you know, out of it completely, but, you know, her, it was just horrible. And I couldn't lose that, that picture of, of Rachel. Um, my, my John thought I would never smile again. It went on for months and months. I started throwing up my food. I'd been free of, of bulimia or anything to do with concerns about my food. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I was throwing up my food. I was getting really thin. I was just desperately sad. And I was totally well connected to Michelle's grief. If Michelle had a smile on her face, maybe I could smile, but only with her, only to, only to kind of reflect where she was at. Um, I didn't feel I would ever be able to pray for anybody again. I didn't want to look at people in the eyes. I would go to the school gate, which is where Rachel and my boys were at the same school, and I knew that everybody was talking about me. I was the mother who had killed Rachel. And um, it was agony. It was just horrible, horrible, dark, dark time. It wasn't that I didn't feel God had abandoned me. I just had so many questions. I couldn't understand. I couldn't reconcile um, what was happening. But I would go into our guest room. We had a little guest room, and I would just sob and sob. And um, several months had gone by. Uh, I don't know, five months or something. And I'm in the guest room, and I'm sobbing. And all of a sudden, I felt this incredible sense of the presence of the Lord, just thick in the air. And I felt as if I was kneeling at the foot of the cross. And I felt God say, Debs, you can go one way or the other. You can go on this endless journey of pain and darkness with all these questions that, that won't have answers. John will pay. Your children will pay. You'll never do the things that I've called you to do. You'll never be who I've called you to be. Or you can let Jesus take it. He'll take the shame. He'll take the guilt. He'll take the pain. He'll take Michelle's grief. He'll take everything about this. And before I could even cognitively just think about what an incredible thing it would be if that would be possible, I felt this blackness just ooze out, just like black treacle come up and out and into the cross. And I felt this lightness come over me. It was the most incredible, wonderful, amazing experience. And then I felt the Lord say, Debs, don't lose the plot. You're going to Nottingham. And I come bounding down the stairs. John, John, we're going to Nottingham. We're going to Nottingham. Now, you just have to, for John, it was like, this is his nervous breakdown wife. I'm, I'm like, I've been, you know, I've been having this, this breakdown. I'm not a well woman. And he, and I'm going, we're going to Nottingham. And he says, darling, he said, just, you know, I'm not doubting that you've had an experience of the Lord. But we need to be very careful here. We've, we've committed ourselves to staying a lot longer. And this would be really disruptive to the staff. You can't go announcing this to people. Let's just be really quiet. Let's ask the Lord to confirm this. Let's not tell anybody, not even John Malona. And if it's the Lord, he'll confirm it. You know, so I'm like, okay, yep, that's totally fine. So I would go to push Jordan and take Jordan to school and on the way there, I'd be thinking, you know, John's right. This, I, I'm going mad. You know, this is ridiculous. Maybe I'm trying to run away. Uh, but I'd get to school, and I, I was looking for who needed Jesus. 
who was in the midst of adultery, who was, uh, had, you know, her husband had walked out on them, who had had a miscarriage, who needed healing. I was just, I couldn't care less what anybody said about me anymore. I really couldn't care less. I was just intent on finding people who needed to know the love of Jesus. And because it had so, for overnight it had changed, I knew that God was in this. And so on the way home, I'd go, it is Nottingham. We must go to Nottingham. It's now. So I'd get back and John and I would start to have a row. We've got to go. It's now. There's an urgency. We've got to get there. People waiting for us. We've got to go. And John's like, no, calm down. We need to have confirmation. And it would go on. It went on for months. We had conflict after conflict. My parents came in to try and counsel us. They kind of agreed that maybe God was speaking to me, but John was very stubborn. And they said, but in the end, Debbie, the Lord, if John needs God to speak to him, you need, we, let's just, you know, you, you can go to, I think actually it was someone else who said to us, you can go too soon, but you can never go too late. And so I was like, okay, I can live with that. So we waited. And eventually, uh, John cried out to the Lord, Lord, if this is you, speak to me or speak to John Mumford or shut Debbie up. <laughs> and the next day, John, John Mumford calls us on our day off, which he was always very respectful of our day off. And he said, I need to come and talk to you. And he came over on Thursday morning and he sat on our sofa and he said, we need to talk about the unthinkable. And we're like, what, what do you mean? And he goes, the Lord's just been impressing upon me that I need to let you go. And I can't bear to do this. But for weeks now, I've been looking at you. You're sitting on the front row. And the Lord says, will you let them go? Let them go. And then he said, finally, the Lord said to me, I need to speak to you because John is not going to initiate this. John Wright is not going to initiate this conversation. And so, he, of course, as soon as he said it, my John, like the shutters on Vision for Nottingham just went... Poof. And all of a sudden, I'm terrified because we're out. We're going to be out of there in three months. I mean, my kids are in good schools. I'm over the the, the, the grief. I mean, I, I'm. I would still maybe weep if you know in worship. Sometimes I remember, and I and I, you know, it's not that there aren't feelings, but I also knew that there was just amazing things going on in 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 extending God's kingdom, and um, and so I was excited, but I was terrified, and oh my gosh, it was just so traumatic. But it was amazing. We put our house on the market for £10,000 more. This is uh, 17 years, 16 years ago. £10,000 more than the, ask, than, than the estate agents, three different estate agents said. But we needed the money for, for the first year of, of church planting, you know, because we didn't know what we were going to do. I mean, we'd, we weren't gonna about to start a new jewellery business. I mean, that wasn't going to work. So, you know, we didn't quite know what we were going to do uh, in the way of work. And uh, a woman turns up and she says... Um, Immediately, you know, within a couple of days, you know, I'm, I'm buying the house and I'm giving you the asking price. And she hadn't even looked around. And I said, but you haven't seen the house. She says, no, this is the house that God told me. This is the house in which I'll be blessed. And I said, but are you a Christian? And she goes, no. <laughs> and I said, but, but God speaks to you. Yes, she said, and God told me I mustn't quibble. I mustn't try and barter you down because you need the money for what you're going to do. And I'm thinking, how, what do you mean God's speech? She said, well, she said, I began to suffer from depression about five years ago and I started reading the Bible and God speaks to me. But she had no idea that the church would be relevant in any way. Absolutely like, you know, no idea that, that there was anything to, to be done within the community of the Christian faith. So, of course, I loaded her up with CDs and worship and told her where the vineyard was and everything. And, you know, to this day, I don't know if she ventured to her local church or whether she ever visited or what happened. But I realize there are so many people out there who are having experiences of God 
who are right now calling out to Jesus, to, to God for something. And, and where are we? We're in here worshipping. You know, uh, we're walking around, you know, uh, thinking about what kind of, what we're going to do with our small group that night or, you know, and I'm not saying those things are absolutely essential because as we welcome people in, we need to do that. But at the same time, we're going around with our eyes closed and not realizing that there's people everywhere. And I'm, I'm as guilty as any of us here of missing, uh, you know, talking to people. But at the same time, there's some amazing adventures to be had out there. And I'm going to tell you a, a lot of those kind of stories tomorrow. But anyway, so we moved to Nottingham. And uh, people started calling us up and asking us, uh, we hear you're starting a vineyard. And at first we were worried because there were too many Christians. And we knew that we'd come to reach people who didn't know Jesus. And, um, but then we realized we were so grateful because these people, I mean, they've either gone to plant or gone on our church planting team or they're still with us. And they are pillars in our church, the ones that came. They had dreams, they had prophecies about why they were to join us. None of them had come because they were fed up with church. They were just longing to participate in extending the kingdom. And uh, from the outset, our meetings had unbelievers there. And so we had to explain ourselves uh, always. You know, we couldn't assume that everybody there knew Jesus. And it has been an incredibly exciting roller coaster ride. Um, Because of our passion for the poor and the urban poor particularly, We've probably done the worst thing in terms of over-diversification. We are so complex as a staff team that uh, I just wonder from year to year how we're going to survive. But at the same time, the Lord has just blessed us beyond imagination. We have such a vibrant, healthy church. And we have a cross-section of people who are incredibly needy and then some very well-to-do people. And um, because of all our kind of outreach things, one of the things we felt the Lord say to us is, I want to reverse the reputation that the church has in our cities. Because, because England is no longer a Christian nation, and so there are many, many empty church buildings that have been turned over to become factories or, or cafes. I mean, they make the most beautiful restaurants, artsy exhibition centers, things like that. But the statement that it makes to the to the to the cities and to the people is that the church is no longer full of worshippers because they don't they have no understanding of churches meeting in in buildings that are not steeple buildings so they don't know that the church is alive and well the people of god are alive and well but they're now meeting in schools in in bars in in football stadium or uh, kind of banqueting suites in and building buildings that look more like warehouses than churches so they don't get that but so our cities have no idea that the church is relevant so we felt the Lord say, bless the city, bless the city. So, you know, we're here to be a Christian community, but we're also going to bless our city. And um, I'm just going to end with, with just this great story of the, the mayor, uh, the mayor of our city. He decides to, he wants to visit our church. And um, he, for some reason, he's heard about us. So he comes along first on a weekday and we show him around and He's just amazed all the young people who are doing various things around the building and things are going on. There's a school for kids that are on the verge of exclusion. There's a house for um, vulnerable women. Uh, We have this benevolence ministry that's just sees 3,000 people a year with people coming out of addiction and all this sort of stuff. And he's really amazed. And then he says, can I, and, and then he says, how many do you get on a Sunday? And so we said, well, you know, there's probably on a Sunday at least 1,300 people. But membership-wise, you know, over kind of, we know that we have at least 1,800 people in the church. And he's like, really? Really? 
And um, he's absolutely shocked. So he says, can I come on a Sunday? So he comes on a Sunday wearing his full, like, he has this, like, big chains and gowns. You know, it's like, it's all very traditional. The only church experience that he has is going to a very high liberal church with incense. I mean, you know, nobody's really talking about Jesus. And so he and his wife show up. Now, I remember hearing that they they had lost their daughter to cancer, and um, who was probably in her 30s. So they're sitting just behind us in worship, and, and everybody's worshiping our usual light, like this morning, just lovely, beautiful worship. And uh, there was a, you know, somebody preached, I can't remember who, but anyway, at the end, um, his wife is clearly experiencing the Lord. And so I remember she just sort of fell into my arms and she said, I can feel the spirit of my daughter. <laughs> and it was like she had no idea, she had no way of, of um, putting language into what she was feeling. So this, the feeling that she was having of, was of love, love that you, know, that you have with somebody that's really close to you. So the only language she could use is like, the spirit of my daughter is here. And I said, oh, I said, you're encountering the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit of Jesus. And uh, he's here to comfort you and heal you and bless you. And uh, to minister to you in your grief. And I mean, she was just so open. It was just the most wonderful time of praying for her. And um, anyway, I'm going to end there. I'm just going to end there. And just invite you to stand because I'm sure the Lord, uh, there'll be just various things, um, various things that have just reminded you of why you're in this business of leadership, why you're in the vineyard, why you love the Lord. I mean, various things um, that I will have said, you just are reminded of what it was like to come home, you know, to encounter Jesus, the presence of his Holy Spirit um, for the first time. And I just want us for a moment as we open up to the Holy Spirit to just remind ourselves of that first time when you just fell in love with Jesus through experiencing his presence and his unconditional love. And it doesn't matter how mature we are, sometimes we just need that that reminder